Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Eagles in Context, and it's my treat to have Dr. Mark Allen on the broadcast today. Dr. Mark finished his PhD at Notre Dame, which we'll need to talk about a little bit. He is a professor of biblical and theological studies at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, although in the picture I don't see any red in the shot, so you know, it's yeah. a little bit of a problem. <laughs> but he's been a pastor and a church planner for 20-plus years, and as always, all the information is in the show notes. Mark, thanks for joining us on the broadcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Dr. Allen has produced a book called The Augustine Way, or do you say Augustine? I say Augustine. A little backstory: when the pandemic hit, I formed a reading group, Dr. Allen, of mm. a bunch of smart guys, and we <laughs> met through WebEx every Monday for lunch. Wow. And the first book we tackled was Confessions. Beautiful. We had a delightful, arduous time reading yeah. Confessions and many supportive pieces. Leland Riken's stuff, of course, has been tremendous. Mm. So when I saw that Baker had published his book, I was anxious to talk to you. So, so first of all, give us a little bit of background on why you got interested in Augustine to begin with. Yeah, it was basically Josh Hetro and I wrote a book, Apologetics at the Cross, which is an introductory level book for college seminaries use it for apologetics. And so part of my project in the book was to study the history of apologetics and write a couple chapters on the history of apologetics. And we discovered in that process that Augustine was a powerful apologist, but he was underutilized. And we also, believe it or not, I mean, you wouldn't think that. Not only that, but he seemed very relevant for today. It seemed that to us that this pre-modern apologist had something to say to postmodern or late modern apologists. So in our context. Yeah. Let's take a step back because a lot of times you and I both make assumptions on what people oh, yeah. know. Let's talk yeah. about apologetics. Oh yeah. And you're classifying Augustine as an apologist. Yeah. Many would say it was a theologian or a church father. So help us a little, Doc. Yeah, he was definitely an apologist because apologists basically defends the faith, and an apologist makes an appeal, a winsome appeal for the faith. And certainly, we believe confessions, and we know for sure in a city of God that that's exactly what Augustine was doing, is he was functioning as an apologist as a pastor. Okay, so he was primarily a bishop, but we should probably think of him, when we think of the word bishop, we should probably think of him more as a shepherd and a pastor of a congregation. And so as mm -hmm. that shepherd and pastor helped them defend a faith, and he also made a very winsome, relevant appeal for the gospel of the Lord Jesus and for the Christian faith in general. Many theologians, scholars, seminary folks will say after Paul, Augustine was arguably one of the most important voices. Would you agree with that, or is that hyperbolic? Or? <laughs> well, my students would laugh at that, you know, because my son was, I don't read my evaluations much online. or <laughs> Smart man. You know, I, I stay away from that. My son happened to dig into it a little bit online. And fortunately, they were good, and I was happy, but I'm not going to look at them. But he said <laughs> there, was, there was one critique that said, 
oh, he talks more about Augustine than he does Jesus. And uh, I think the same could be true for me, that I might talk more about Augustine than Paul, perhaps. But he was a powerful interpreter and uh, reflect deeply on Jesus and deeply on the teachings uh, of Paul as well. So he brings Paul forward in his context in the 4th and 5th century. One of the striking things I found about the Confessions, on one level, it's a very accessible read. Mm -hmm. On another, it's kind of dark. The way he grieves the loss of a friend I thought was most fascinating, which illustrates, I guess, men in the Western culture were pretty friendless American males. You hear that tossed around. Insights on Augustine's friendship and why that took him so deeply? Well, in one sense, he felt it was a negative experience. Sure. Because he was overly leaning into friendships and not enough into God. As he reflected on it later in life, that he was so destroyed by the loss of a friend that he felt overly attached. One thing about evangelical pastors and leaders, I don't think they talk to their congregations or their leadership teams the way Paul would have talked. He talked Hmm. about loving them and longing for them and his hopes in them. And so Augustine, although he did critique that he was overly attached. Once he came to the place where he his attachment was greater to God and love of God, friendships were always important to Augustine. In fact, his dream life was not becoming a bishop. He wanted a handful of friends to form like a monastery. And in fact, when he was on his way to Hippo in North Africa, He was from Tagasta. He had formed a kind of little monastery there, and he was on his way to Hippo to form another little monastery there because he, I mean, any of us have been in academics, you know, even C.S. Lewis once critiqued himself. I mean, he loved the Inklings. You know, we love to sit around and reflect and think and pray. And Augustine would have been a rigorous friend because he would have been constantly getting others to critique him. He would have critiqued them. But friendships were very deeply important to Augustine. I read somewhere where someone said of him, he was probably rarely alone. But in his friendships, the cool thing about it was he was forming a monastery, but he wanted a monastery in the city. So the friendships, the prayer together, the reflection on God, ultimately he wanted it to make a difference in his context, in his city, in the world. And so it wasn't just being a recluse, it wasn't just escapism, but it was actually for the purpose of engagement in the city. I think it's important for modern readers because we don't know the, I don't know if you call Augustine the ancient, but we don't know, in a way, the voices of the early church mm-hmm. very well. Church Fathers tends to be an academic, dusty, you know, maybe in a seminary yeah. or uh, MDiv, you might study some of the heresies, but let's look at your book overview. I always like studying a table of contents because I really think it's important to understand where an author is going. So you say going back to the future is part one, and then the Augustinian vision for today. You have a chapter called The Prodigal Son Returns Home. Mm -hmm. 
Augustinian assessment of contemporary apologetics. And that's interesting because you and Joshua are basically, you're doing like a form criticism, I guess, of what he thought. And then in the second part, his vision for today, you're taking some of the theology philosophy of Augustine and saying, how do we understand that today? Is that a fair? Yes. We're trying to read Augustine well in his context, and then we're trying to retrieve him. And retrieval isn't just taking Augustine and then just applying it directly. We've gone through the Enlightenment, the Reformation, and we are in a time of late modernity. So how does Augustine, how do we receive him today? How does his voice, ancient voice, speak in a fresh way to us today? So that's what we're looking to do. I do want your take on Augustine's first common law wife and then later again because it's kind of the elephant in the room sometimes talking about Augustine. Yeah, that was quite normal in his day. Some people try to paint Augustine as like a frat party boy, you know, and he was just immoral. And he did admit sometimes he did go to church. Now, this is when he was moving away from the faith, right? Okay, this is early. Before he was a bishop. Before he was a bishop, bishop. Before his conversion, he would go to church to look to pick up a date, you know, so, but in those times, it wasn't unusual to have a common law wife and in order to have sex, and he actually did have a son with her. His mother, Monica, never liked this arrangement. She She was was tough. She was a tough Catholic mom. His dad, Patrick, and Monica They wanted better things for Augustine, not just religiously. They wanted him to climb the social ladder as well. And so this common law wife just didn't please them. But after his conversion, Augustine did separate from his common law wife. That's a hard one to take for us. Well, He he writes about how heartbreaking it was, too. He he didn't want to do it. No, he didn't want to do it. it. It tore out his heart. But that became part of his journey, and he never he never married after that. Well, let's jump into your book about the prodigal son returns home and then this Augustinian assessment of contemporary apologetics. Yeah. I, I think yeah. it's interesting where you guys go at this. We are as gentle as we can be in our assessment. That's sort of my posture and personality and Josh's as well, although he was a he was a college soccer player, and he's pretty a little more competitive than I am, but uh, I'm kind of older and a little mellow. So we did critique, and I'm not going to name names, but some of the uses and approaches to classical apologetics. And classical apologetics is just to use traditional arguments to argue for theism that God exists. Okay, you argue for God exists, and then you argue that Jesus Christ is that God, and he has revealed the Trinity, and he's revealed that the Bible is true, and it's sort of arguments, and you think a lot of it of proofs and rationalism. And I I don't know about you, but at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had Norm Geisler, and I went through his whole Christian apologetics. We critique that approach not because we don't think that there are many, many gains, Values, values, yeah, many values, but we were critiqued because we think that it underestimates the power 
of the affections, the power of our social imaginary. And to explain what that is, it's, it's our cultural context, that we're more cultural animals and we've been shaped more by our, our social surroundings. You know, here we are in the 21st century by our world. And so some of the, yeah, duh, assumptions that people make, they've been formed into those. And so we underestimate the way culture forms us. And so we think just a rational, logical, you know, will work. And we use that sometime. And then the person looks at us and says, hey, glad that's working for you. Uh, (laughs) You know, if you're lucky. (laughs) Yeah, they might even say, well, that makes sense, but it's just not my truth. And so I think underestimating modern apologetics to a great extent underestimates the power of the social imaginary. And Mm -hmm. it also underestimates the power of the human affections and for the way that we make decisions in life. Most people, although we do use cognition, and it's very important. I mean, I'm a college, university professor, so I think cognition is very important. But in the apologetic enterprise, we got to realize that a lot of people, most people, humans make their decisions from the gut and the affections along with Mm. the cognition. Interesting. Jonathan Haidt has written a bestseller. It always amazes me when these real brainy people write these bestsellers. Jonathan Haidt has been a university professor at UVA, New York University, and he's written a book called The Righteous Mind. And he says that we make our decisions, and I hope that I'm accurate in the way I portray this, but our affections and our emotions and our wants and our desires are like the elephant in our lives. And we're riding on the elephant and the elephant is taking us where we want to go. But our, our minds are like a judge who then are making rationalities to accord with where we really want to go. So that people are actually making decisions from their gut. We feel that Augustine appreciated that. He looked at people primarily as lovers They are people who, deep in our gut, we've been designed to love God, and the way Augustine puts it, love other people in God. And that's the heartbeat. That is the affections. That's where we're bent. Now, people are fallen and twisted. Our loves are misdirected. Our loves are misordered. But we are still relentless worshipers and lovers. We're looking for something to give us meaning, something to worship, you know, something to give us direction. That's human. It's human to do that. The problem is we're looking for love in all the wrong places, right? In the book, when we're critiquing these apologetic methodologies that are actually good, the classical evidentialist, and we even see that the presuppositional apologetics and which assumes the gospel and assumes the Trinity when it's making arguments, they've been influenced a little bit too much, we believe, by modernity, enlightenment thinking, Mm. and they're overly rationalistic. Now, there was nobody that was more intellectual, I think, than Augustine, but it was a kind of rationalism that he put forward. It was faith seeking understanding. So it was belief seeking understanding. So Augustine 
albeit he was rational, but he he knew that people were more than simply rationality. They were people with desires and affections and loves, and God designed them to be that way. Interesting you mentioned Geisler because I had him as well, and we refer to him as Storm and Norman. Yeah. Tenacious guy. He was a Quinian in his sort mm-hmm. of, I think, his, his foundation, yeah. but... After seminary, I would run into him every year at Tel Dan, oddly, in Israel. Yes. <laughs> we would step over and catch up and talk, and he was the most delightful man yeah. outside of seminary. Yeah. He was kind, he was generous, but I appreciate what you're saying. And my comment was, John Ankerberg is a friend, Ravi Zacharias, and I had, I would say I knew him, we weren't close, but that whole apologetic approach to me, I'm dazzled by those guys. I mean, they're dazzling, but I never argued anybody into the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't the ontological argument or the defense of the Trinity. It came down to that relational capital in a word. Yeah. I hate the cliche, but you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's this transactional relationship more so today. You're working with college students than ever in my experience is they value authenticity and transparency and are you one of them and are you loving more than anything yeah. you know or that you have a doctor in front of your name yeah. or you're and so that's interesting that you're saying augustine would have approached it in that well to use my word a relational capital not an evidential or argumentative debate yeah he he would use ad hoc arguments sure you know I like the one that said the resurrection isn't true. It has to be a miracle because it has spread so, you know, so far throughout the world. And so he's being yeah. a little ironic and sarcastic there. But he would use, you know, evidential, historical arguments like that in times, and they're important. But, you know, I think you used words like, you know, authenticity and this genuineness. And as you recall and think back on your reading of Confessions, I think the guy was probably more honest about his life than some people would at his time would even have felt comfortable with. Very authentic in telling you how his journey. And it's kind of neat that his journey was indeed an intellectual one. But when you look closer at it, it was a heart journey. He was longing he was looking, he was seeking. And actually, when he turned away from fully embracing Platonism or the academics who basically doubted everything, I mean, you know, that's that was their posture. He said there was no healing in Platonism. There was no healing in the academics, but he found healing in the name of Jesus. And mm-hmm. so this idea of therapy and healing became very, very important for Augustine and very deeply authentic in his approach to his faith and his pastoral ministry. David Augsburger had a great line. He said, no one ever shed a tear over a propositional truth. (laughs) That was a a good assessment. That is true. Let's go into how you are basically, perhaps not the best way of saying it, you're projecting Augustine's vision for today. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, for one, we're looking at some similarities in our cultural context. Indeed, they're different, okay? Indeed, they are different. But when Augustine ministered, especially when he wrote The City of God, pluralism was resurging. It had never left, but with the sack of Rome, Christianity had some grip 
some grip on the Greco-Roman world, not the level that we would find that Christianity has had in the you know last 1,500 years in Western society, but it still had a grip. But when Rome fell, the paganism resurged, okay? Paganism was deeply imprinted in the culture of the Greco-Roman world so that a lot of the folks who fled, wealthy folks, who fled Rome, they went down to North Africa. Yeah. And they had land holdings in North Africa. And so some of the people that he was preaching to were these pagans. And so the point of connection here is we live in a pluralistic age. You know, we could say the pluralism is on steroids. Yeah. We're as, about as pluralistic as we have people with the individualism, high levels of individualism. So there's some real connections with the pluralism. And then I think that the turn to healing and therapy in our generation. Now, some Christians look at that only negatively. Like, oh, look, we live in the therapeutic age, and there are many negative things about it. You know, it's not an age that we think about as people think sin is the problem. They think, oh, the problem is I just need some therapy. And so, but instead of, we kind of do an Augustinian thing, we take that term, therapy and healing, and baptize it. And that's what Augustine often did. He would take the Greco-Roman terms and he would define them in Christian terms so that Augustine's project was to convert these terms. He had a conversion project. So anyway, we see these connections between this pre-modern and our late modern, post-modern age, and we try to bring those in to today. You've mentioned post-modernity a couple of times now, and, and I've heard it called post-post-modernity and, yeah. and other attempts. And individualism, and I've got sort of my own little hack observations that social media and the phone have really transformed us uniquely in history. The individualism is more rampant now than perhaps any time in history. Yeah. And so you're looking at information in very small you know, truncated pieces very quickly, neurosynaptically, it can't be retained. There's an endorphin thing going on with this that it's it's basically an addiction. And you and I are in this world of read the scripture, yeah. read Augustine, think, you know, critically and theologically, and also love your neighbor on the way. Yeah. So it seems like your task as a professor, of course, students coming to Liberty are going to want to learn, I would hope. Yeah as opposed to a Christian kid going to a secular university where he or she, they shrug their shoulders at modernity. They don't even know what, why that's important, Doc. Yeah. You know, it's like an old the idea of, that you just put out. It's the story of the, the two young fish are swimming by one day, and the one old fish swims by, and, and the old fish says to the young fish, how's the water today? And, uh, you know, they're like, puzzled and the the two young fish swim by and they look at each other and say what's water you know what is water we're you know we're swimming in it we're we're breathing in it we don't consider it but you know i think as a professor and i think because i have a pastoral background is i appeal to their hearts that's the language that they speak to a great extent Mm -hmm. and then as i speak to their hearts, then I 
seek to bring in a robust theological reflection and how it does matter and it does speak to their hearts. I think the times that I was trained in was modernity was very strong. And I think I was sort of formed in in sort of this overly rationalistic way of thinking. Hmm. It was back probably in the early 2000s. I decided, now I don't recommend this, don't do this at, at home. I preached through the whole book of Revelation as a pastor. I took almost a year to do it. And I was almost done. And I said to my wife, what'd you think? Karen, Karen, <laughs> Karen's from the, she's from the show me state. So she's oh, a little, boy. she's a little blunt. And she said, you took all the emotion out of it. Wow. And that's what I was trying to do. I was just trying to wow. now think about the book of Revelation. Think yeah. about apocalyptic literature. It, it appeals to the emotion. But, you know, when we grew up, sometimes pastors would manipulate emotion. So I got as far away from that as I could. Yeah. But if I were to preach it today, you know, mm-hmm. I would preach deeply about the longings of the heart, the the journey that we're on, the the longing mm-hmm. for Eden, that uh, the Edenic ending, the worthy as the lamb, the deep levels of prayer in the story, the feeling we have, we want justice, we want things set right. And so I think today as we're teachers and as we are preachers and pastors, that we have to approach people as loving, desiring beings at a deep level as a core, not manipulating the emotion, but appealing to the heart. So much of the way uh, probably trained similarly was uh, right thinking leads to right emotion. The old Bill Bright tract, you know, faith, fact follows feeling or whatever emotion. And I I appreciate what you're saying. And I probably learned it too late as well. But I remember many times over the years as a pastor just long pause saying, you know, Christ loves you, and just letting mm-hmm. it sit. And it's palpable in a congregation. Yeah. And look him in the eye and genuinely and sincerely say, he loves you. He, he knows you're a sinner. He knows I'm a big sinner, but he loves you. Uh, and nothing you can do will ever change that. And you'll see people weep. Yes. It's such a striking thing. I have a, a friend who's he's just a mess right now, and I call him occasionally, and he's a bright man, near photographic memory. And uh, we talk on the phone periodically and he's been through, he lost his Mm -hmm. wife to cancer and I love him like crazy. And he's had a hard time. And I say, you know, Christ loves you. And you can feel it across the phone. It's like, no one tells me this. I don't know that I believe it. And you know, this God of love and obviously love wins has run amok from that standpoint. But I hate the word balance is that what we've done, Dr. Allen? We've overcompensated with this rational thinking? Or you and I both know a dear friend at Dallas Seminary who's a Hebrew professor who his big treatise was being right isn't enough. Yeah. He dropped this big bomb on the seminary and uh, he left. And Dr. Allen Ross, who was the chair of the department yeah. at the time, says he's still trying to be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Touche. Yeah. So it, it's, it's kind of hardwired in some of us when well, we had to be right. The critical nature part of us, we even talk about thinking critically when we're talking about education. So how do you, you don't want to abandon that, right? I think one of the things that we noted 
in Augustine was his posture, epistemic humility. He wasn't an absolutist on every issue. It's amazing in his preaching, sometimes he say, he would say, could be this, might be that. I, th- I think it's this one. We got a little section even on his posture toward Genesis 1 and 2 in creation that while he did take a pretty historical position, he was also open to learn from others. And I love what he said. We need to study the scriptures together in the wide pastures of charity. And so Mm. I tell my students, I say, we can try to be right. And I think we should passionately, this is the second thing I'll get to, but this uh, passionately should seek truth. But, But we will learn it better and deeper in a context of love. We really will. Now, I believe in rigorous debate, but in a context of love, our very cognitive facilities work better because we are lovers. And if we're loved, we can get to the truth better. Another posture that Augustine had, how does he start the book? Uh, Our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. So he starts with with the longing and the reflection, but at the end of the book, he's still a little restless. He's still seeking. And we will not find that fullness of rest until we get home. But the point is, at the end of the book, he is still seeking. He is still finding. He's still knocking. He's knocking. He's seeking. He's finding. He's seeking. So we will not arrive. To think that we have arrived and that we are absolutely right on these positions is not a good posture for lifelong learning. And I think Augustine would teach us humility, and then he would teach us that we're just on a journey. I mean, that was one of his favorite metaphors. We're on a journey, and we haven't arrived. But he believed in absolutely in Christ and salvation through Christ. Sure. Read his works. You know, if you cut him, his blood would have been bibline. I mean, he would have bled the Bible. He narratizes his story through a biblical narrative, right? He tells his story, even the, like the pear story is like the Eden and the apple, you yeah. know. And so he was committed to orthodox truth. He was committed to scripture, but he had a humble posture of learning and learning from other yeah. people. When I was at Moody, I had the privilege of meeting a lot of successful, and I mean that in the right way, Christian people in ministry, authors, you know, large ministries, mm-hmm. etc. And I remember one in particular, love him to death, but I met him and it was first time. We talked on the phone, but our first face-to-face, Mark, and I said, you know, I wish I was convinced about one thing is you are everything. Yeah, yeah. it's and true. he didn't laugh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he didn't laugh. Know. And I hit him, I hit him on the shoulder. I said, that was a joke, yeah. but it so struck me. And my friend, I don't know if you know Dr. Ahmad Shahadi over in Jordan, he has a seminary, the only seminary in the Middle East that would be considered evangelical, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary Jets. He teased me once. He said, you should come over here and try to preach on the land because we've got Arabs and Jordanians and Israel and guys from Egypt. we got all over the Middle East and all different, you know, we're not this homogenous evangelical belt that might be, you know, a few inches wide. And we had an interesting discussion. Of course, he exemplifies what you've articulated. He's got a position, Mm -hmm. but let's sit down civilly and loving and respecting each other 
And if you want to try and be loving in a group of Middle Easterners talking about the yeah. land, that'll test your salvation, <laughs> not your sanctification. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me go to one of your chapters on the church. Okay, great. And you write, the church's calling is to be a living apologetic while suffering affliction as all people must in this life. Yet through our affliction, God is at work to reorder our loves as we, quote, the pilgrim city of Christ the King, close quote, listen to the scriptures, sing praises to his name, and partake the sacraments. I mean, it kind of sums up what yeah. you're saying right now. Expand on that some would be great. Well, I think the local church is so important and the renewal of the local church spiritual formation in context of the local church is vital to apologetics to live it out and i think you know, i just before this podcast came out of an apologetics and cultural engagement honors class really smart students and we talked about all the bad stuff that christians they can say some really bad stuff on social media and you know we have failed many times as a church. And so it's difficult right now to feel that the church isn't a good apologetic, but we need to get back to the place where the local church is the place where we are formed well, formed in wisdom, not just knowledge, Augustine would say, formed in humility, not in pride. And the church becomes a place, it's a hospital and a place of healing you know, I talk about plausibility structures. It's not obviously not original. With me, it's Peter Berger, a Christian sociologist, came up with the idea. And so plausibility structures are just things that are believable. You know, they get in society and things can be believable or not believable. In the 1500s, it was absolutely plausible that Jesus rose from the dead. In the 21st century, it's not so much, okay? But if we want people to believe that Christ rose from the dead, the local church needs to be a plausibility structure that that's true. They need to see the living Christ, not in perfection. You know, we're not going to, in fact, Augustine was far from, his book is called Confessions. <laughs> uh, he's, he, he, <laughs> yeah, he's far from, far from perfect, and so is the church, but we have a humble posture of confession, we are seeking, we haven't arrived, and it's a place of healing. And I think one of the emphases in our book is the local church. Many times people think of Augustine first and foremost as a philosopher, maybe as a theologian, and he was. But more than anything, he was on the ground doing pastoral ministry. He was very nimble and responsive to the needs of his congregation, to needs of his culture. He was often concerned about the way the church lived. Can I read a quote to you? Of course. I think it's interesting that Augustine was speaking to his congregation. Now, I don't know how you would do this today, but he just basically dismissed the pagans from the congregation. And he was just talking to the congregation who were claimed to be believers and this is what he said to them at the end of his message after the pagans had been dismissed. He says, I've already said to you yesterday, brothers and sisters, and I say it again now, and I'm always begging you to win over those who haven't yet believed by leading good lives. Otherwise, you too, I fear, 
or have believed to no purpose. I beseech you all, in the same way as you take pleasure in the Word of God. I mean, they loved his teaching. So to express that pleasure in the lives you lead. Let God's Word please you, not only in your ears, but in your hearts too. Not only in your hearts, but also in your lives, so that you may be God's household, acceptable in His eyes, and fit for every good work. I haven't the slightest doubt, brothers and sisters, that if you will live in a manner worthy of God, the time will very soon come when none of those who have not yet believed will remain in unbelief. Powerful, powerful words to this congregation about the importance of the word, not just the cognition, not just enjoying a good sermon, but letting it seep down to our hearts and then work out into our lives. It's so important, and that happens primarily in the context of the local church, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the fellowship together. You know, it's interesting. Most of my life, it's been involved in church, 43 plus years, basically in a pastoral role, except for a brief stint in, in Chicago at Moody. But it's striking to me as I observe the church now as a consumer, not involved in leadership as a pastor, teacher, or whatever, it's really hard to find a church that gets anything right. And I, I don't mean that to sound, yeah. you know, oh, what was me, sky is falling, but the overemphasis on the therapeutic model, which in my yeah. part of the country, that's become God. Yeah. And I agree with your earlier comment. There is a need for a good biblical, and some people really need deep therapy. They've been hurt deeply, and they have need help to get out of that and get through it and, and process how to live then. But the church is not meant to be a counseling center. Yeah. On the other side, the church is not meant to be a seminary classroom. Yeah. And it always reflects, as you know, I'm going to say the man in the pulpit. It reflects how he was trained, mm-hmm. who his mentors may be. And I don't know what your assessment of it is, but it's quite disheartening when I look around, just the lack of biblical exposition and lack of discipleship, the lack of teaching people how to share Christ with their friends. And I don't even know how to diagnose it. I'm at a loss, really, because of this individualistic culture we've talked about. It's it's a perplexing time to me. You're the professor, Dr. (laughs) Allen, so straighten me out. Well, I, I don't know how to do that fully. Cindy hasn't figured uh, out how to straighten me out either. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. We might it might take more time than that, but um, you know, I I think um, I am an interim pastor right now of a Methodist church. That might surprise you, but it has recently disaffiliated. No, you went to Notre yeah, Dame, so nothing right. surprises there you go. me. There you go. Um, and so uh, I'm preaching through the book of Philippians. And, you know, it is amazing at how much Paul appeals to the heart and to uh, the issues of the heart and how much emphasis he appeals to, let's do this together. Even the work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is a communal act. It's working out that salvation together. And it's God who is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But I think if we preach, and I, this is the amazing thing, that this church, they have responded to biblical preaching. And love they it. love it. And it's, they're like sponges. I think the pastor has to give himself 
to the love of God. One of the things that it's helped me every morning at 5 a.m., I'm up going through the Book of Common Prayer. People say, well, that seems legalistic. No, it has been so forming and shaping. The other day I had an encounter with someone where I had to be very forceful. I mean, forceful. Uh, my voice came up. I told my wife that I said the next morning when I got up, I didn't have to confess sin. The mm. point I was making is I don't think I sinned in that. But every morning I get up, I'm confessing my sin to God. I'm yeah. reading Psalms to God. I'm loving God. And I think if the congregation can grasp the fact that the pastor loves more than technique, more than using the individuals as units to get a mission done, but actually values the people, loves the Word of God, loves the people, I think it'll be refreshing and make a difference and not yeah. not overly obsessed for some kind of odd definition of success or growth, but deeply in love and passionate about God and God's people. I think that'll come through, and I think it is therapeutic. I think it is very healing. I didn't feel like we touched on your book very much. I apologize, but Handbook to Prayer by Ken Boa has been that for mm. Cindy and me. We've got Valley of Vision, Common yeah. Prayer, I'm yeah. all of them on, on a shelf. Over the years at the last church I served, we said, if you're a regular attender, we want to give you a copy of Handbook to Prayer and challenge people to do it for 90 days. And his morning affirmations, there are 10 of them, and not unlike the Common Book of Prayer, you will have a hard time getting through mm five or six of the 10 without being convicted, encouraged, reminded of your sinful nature, reminded of things you should or shouldn't have done or said. And then the affirmations, the way he structures the book, it's all scripture. Yeah. Again, it's not legalism. I tell people we evangelicals don't know how to pray. Let me give you just a couple of minutes because yeah. we need to conclude. The return of the bishop, give me a sense of where you're going with this. We want Augustine to have a seat at the apologetic table. And so we're trying to reach back into Augustinian methodologies, I guess I would say, which are grounded to me in good theological anthropology, good theological epistemology, or that is, how do we know? You know, how do we know and who are people? Yeah, well, we yeah. know. So I think we're trying to bring him forward to today with his pastoral emphasis with his emphasis on the church, the local church, as well as the universal church, but the local church is where we live out in real space-time, the universal church. And so I think retrieving him for apologetics today, we have tapped into him and also maybe some exemplars today who are doing similar things as well. The new book is called The Augustine Way, and as always, we have the information in the show notes, Dr. Joshua Chatraw and Dr. Mark Allen. Dr. Mark Allen has been my guest today, so appreciate meeting you face-to-face -face and hearing about your ministry, and thanks for the labors to put it in print. We greatly appreciate it. Michael, it's uh, been a pleasure, and I've enjoyed so much talking with you. Thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. 
In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.